Good morning, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen. Salam alaikum. Uh, should you happen to be in the Arab region, the Middle East, the Islamic world, <clears throat> or Europe, or in a different time zone than Eastern Standard Time <clears throat> in the United States? <clears throat> My name is uh, Dr. John Duke Anthony. I'm the founding president and chief executive officer of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations, which is a non-governmental organization. It has as its uh, vision uh, to place the Arab-U.S. relationship on as firm a foundation as possible, and firmer than it has been, firmer than it is, and firmer than it is likely to be unless enough good people on all sides of the rela relationship have this as a high priority and work diligently and assiduously and indefatigably to uh, accomplish uh, this objective. And, and today we're focusing on a controversial and some would even say a contentious uh, topic, and that has to do with uh, America's relationship with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. <clears throat> it is a contentious relationship because for the better part of the last uh, 60 years, uh, there have been many people in the United States who would view uh, Saudi Arabia as not as a friend, uh, let alone a partner, let alone a strategic ally. Uh, they would regard it as an, as an adversary. And this is in large measure because of what Saudi Arabia is. Uh, it is the captain of the 57 Islamic uh, countries, uh, the most important country in the 28th uh, nation, Middle East, and the 22 uh, countries who belong that belong to the uh, League of Arab States, 22 Arab uh, countries there. And here we have a country, a country uh, that is pivotal uh, to uh, international economies. It, it uh, obtains, possesses, and produces and exports uh, the hydrocarbon fuels that power the engines that drive the economies of every country in the world, large and small, new and old, everything in between, intermediate as, as well. Uh, with regard to uh, its importance, uh, it, it, it goes without saying in, in the sense of well, what it has, uh, prodigious amounts of uh, petroleum. It has more than 10 times uh, proven reserves of the United States of, of America. <clears throat> Five times a day, billions of Muslims worldwide uh, uh, bend in obeisance towards Saudi Arabia geographically, directionally uh, uh, for their prayers. Once in their lifetime, they uh, do their best uh, to participate in the pilgrimage uh, to Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia. We have a, a country that is of enormous uh, importance nationally to its citizens. Obviously, it goes without sort of saying, but it also has uh, impact on its uh, neighborhood. Uh, therefore, it has a regional impact in addition to the national one. And then because of its peculiar, at times, particular uh, relationship with the United States consistently, um, it has a global Im impact and effect. So this is no small country, despite the fact that many are envious of it, see it as an adversary, jealous of it. Uh, there's not a country on the planet 
that would not trade places with the United States in its relationship with the United States. Nor uh, among Arab, Middle Eastern, and Islamic countries are there any that would trade, not trade places with Saudi Arabia in terms of its long-standing special relationship with the United States <clears throat> and going on eight decades now. Here you have a situation where uh, America's uh, interests uh, are to be uh, categorized as follows in the, in the uh, descending order of importance. An overall strategic importance terms of the bearing that Saudi Arabia has, we have, together we have, on matters of, of global uh, peace and matters pertaining to security, matters pertaining to stability, matters pertaining to the prospects uh, for peace. Uh, so here you have a situation where strategy has trumped, no pun intended, the uh, political aspects of the relationship. There we have as the head of state of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, who on the campaign trail uh, mentioned uh, Saudi Arabia in terms of a pariah and that he would not have anything to do uh, with it as long as it remained that pariah like state. And yet here you find the head of state of the most powerful country on the planet uh, within a matter of days. Uh, getting on Air Force One and going to Saudi Arabia to meet with the crown prince of the kingdom, something that he implied uh, he would uh, hardly give serious and favorable uh, consideration to do. And so in terms of America's needs, America's concerns, America's interests, America's uh, objectives, you find the strategic objectives there of security, of stability, of peace, and the prospects for prosperity, trumping uh, the political dynamics of what one in an ideal world or a different world uh, would do differently, uh, where the world structured and reality is profoundly different. We have three people to focus on this uh, challenging topic. Uh, this morning uh, for the better part of an, of an hour and a half. Uh, with regard to our moderator, Colonel Abbas uh, Dahouk, uh, who was former U.S. Uh, Army attache uh, and U.S. defense attache at the U.S. Embassy in Saudi Arabia. And he is a lifelong foreign affairs officer who taught not just Arabic, but also Farsi. Uh, at the United States Military Academy at Westbourne, uh, New York. Um, Colonel Abbas retired now as the president of his own firm, Hyphen Point Limited. Uh, he's a member of the board of directors and a very active, proactive and effective uh, member of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. Uh, joining him uh, will be a uh, former career Foreign Service Officer uh, David Rundell. Uh, David Rundell is no stranger to anybody who has lifted a book and turned a page pertaining to Saudi Arabia and America's representation to the kingdom in the last four decades. He's the only American I uh, know uh, who has served intensive, extensive tours of duty 
in the Eastern Province at the Consulate General at Lafran, also at the U.S. Uh, Embassy in uh, Riyadh, and and the U.S. Consulate General in uh, uh, Jeddah. And he served uh, as the chief of mission at the U.S. Uh, Embassy in 2009. At an earlier stage in his career before retirement, he also was the Department of State's liaison uh, to Congress, to Capitol Hill, both houses of, of our legislative branch. Joining him will be Ambassador retired Michael Gufella, uh, who brings uh, linguistic skills to this task, and namely in terms of his uh, being proficient in Russian, uh, Arabic, uh, French, and German. Both have been with us uh, before, and both uh, are as incisive a set of analysts, examiners, estimators uh, of any two one will find this morning or this evening, wherever you may be, focusing on the implications of President Biden's forthcoming visit to Saudi Arabia, the implications and the opportunities that are embedded in this seminal event in the bilateral relationship uh, with respect to which the entire world will be watching. Colonel Dahu. Well, thank you. Uh, uh, thank you, Dr. Anthony, for uh, uh, this, uh, this introduction. And uh, also a good day to all our listeners in the United States and everywhere. And I also extend uh, my welcome to our esteemed guests, uh, Mr. David Rondell and Ambassador uh, uh, Michael uh, Gefeller, to our discussion today on implications and uh, opportunities uh, uh, for the U.S. Uh, and uh, Saudi relationship. Uh, uh, we also have upcoming uh, visit for President Biden. That's also another uh, key, uh, uh, will be a key element in this uh, relationship. Um, as uh, Dr. Anthony mentioned, that um, Saudi Arabia is uh, is not a country to forget about or to uh, to just uh, downplay. Uh, the same thing, the United States is a country that that uh, one wants uh, them to be a strategic par uh, partner. Uh, so both countries have a lot to a lot to offer. Uh, this uh, 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 this uh, visit, it's uh, I think, is going to be historic. Um, uh, it will uh, re perhaps calibrate relationship or was uh, we have to see I think it's going to be as historic as uh, the uh, the Trump's visit and uh, President Trump visit in May 2017 uh, which uh, when I was uh, the defense attache at that time had the opportunity to plan for the visit and be with the visit and uh, work after the visit and it was a uh, uh, pretty historic in a different way uh, President Trump did a very minor historic thing at that time where he decided to fly directly from Riyadh to Tel Aviv. That was usually a, a, the a presidents or uh, secretaries. They, they have to do a technical stop because of lack of diplomatic relationship with Israel. But he decided to, do, to, to fly directly. I think it uh, seems like President Biden is doing the same thing, but in reverse. He will be flying directly from Tel Aviv to, uh, to Jeddah this time to, uh, to attend this uh, GCC summit. And uh, Saudi Arabia returned. They did uh, prep the battlefield, like uh, like we say for for the visit. They Saudis uh, they have the 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 privilege and the power to summon GCC, and so they did. And they also have three countries uh, along with the GCC to participate to also welcome the president uh, there. You have Egypt, Jordan, and and Iraq. 
And on top of that, uh, we saw the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Prince Hamad bin Salman, did his uh, tour. He went, uh, uh, visited Egypt, was welcomed as a head of state in Egypt and also in Turkey and all in, in Jordan. And to solidify the uh, the Arab or the, those uh, five, uh, six plus three countries, their uh, position together, whether on the economic side, on the defense side, or uh, or basically how to deal with uh, with Russia and how to deal with China. Uh, so now it's uh, it's uh, the president's uh, term, the President Biden, to visit and uh, and and see what he has to deliver. So I'd, uh, I'll start with a question for uh, both of you, gentlemen. Um, uh, and you can add uh, a little flavor from historical flavor or political flavor, or diplomatic flavor uh, on uh, what, what does you think uh, now President uh, Biden uh, realistically uh, hope to accomplish in this visit? Well, um, I think that uh, you can hear me. Okay, Mike, Mike and I have uh, thought about this and we have agreed that um, I will talk about the elements that deal with energy and the peace process or the Arab-Israeli dispute. And Mike will talk more about defense relationships and the uh, regional stability aspects of the US-Saudi relationship. So as most people know, the usual, what is usually referred to as the fundamental underpinning of the Saudi-American relationship is energy and security. So we've divided that up. And I would argue also that, that there is more to it than that, but those are important points. So with that little bit of uh, introduction, I would say that in the 40 years that I have been watching the Saudi-American relationship, it has never been in worse shape than it is today. That's quite a statement when you think about uh, 1973 and the oil embargo or 2001 and uh, the 9-11 attacks. But I think it's a, an accurate statement for the following reason. After the Arab oil embargo, the, which the Saudis actually tried to prevent, uh, the Secretary of State and Secretary of, of the Treasury, uh, Kissinger and Schlesinger, quickly realized that uh, we still needed a strong relationship with Saudi Arabia, that the Saudis should be brought into a closer relationship, not pushed away. In other words, not made a pariah, but made a partner. And they actually went to great lengths to do that, to intertwine the Saudi economy with the American economy in a whole range of ways that uh, built the relationship. Uh, the same really could be said after 9-11, um, as the 9-11 Commission uh, demonstrated quite clearly, the Saudi government was not uh, the source of those attacks and that they themselves were then attacked by Al-Qaeda the following, uh, following year. So, in fact, the counterterrorism uh, cooperation that evolved after Al-Qaeda became a global menace actually strengthened the American relationship again with Saudi Arabia. And President uh, Bush entertained King Abdullah at his ranch in Texas uh, on two occasions to help rebuild that the relationship. So this time, it's quite different. This time, we actually have the White House um, leading the charge, if you will, on trying to put distance between Saudi Arabia and the United States. 
Uh, and that we also now have a new generation of leaders in Saudi Arabia. The sons of King Abdullah or King Abdulaziz um, were all brought up in their fundamental thinking that the relationship with the United States was paramount to the security of Saudi Arabia. Uh, the new generation does not necessarily share that view. And they certainly have grown up in a world where China and Russia uh, are both making increasingly important economic and political inroads into the Middle East. So the relationship uh, is in poor condition. The reasons that the relationship remains important were summarized very clearly by Dr. Anthony. The energy equation is certainly part of it, but I would always argue that in reality, regional stability is, act, is really what matters. The Middle East uh, is a strategically volatile but important part of the world. Uh, it's not just Saudi oil, but oil from Kuwait, from Iraq, uh, sometimes even from Iran, certainly from the UAE. Um, a disruption in the GCC, uh, and let's be explicit with that, um, the collapse of the Saudi monarchy uh, would be a disaster for American strategic interests in that part of the world. Let me say that again, that the collapse of the Saudi monarchy would be a disaster for the United States. The government of Saudi Arabia that exists today would not be replaced by a secular liberal democracy. It would be replaced almost certainly uh, by something similar to the Taliban or ISIS a government that shared neither American values nor American interests. And we, ha we have the Islamic Republic of Iran. We don't need the Islamic Republic of Arabia. So Saudi Arabia today is undergoing significant economic and social reforms. Things that we have many times encouraged them to do over the years in which they are now doing not really because we encourage them, but because it's in their own interest to do so. And these very much include uh, the emancipation of women, which is a whole talk we could go into. Uh, everyone knows that women can now drive, but there are dozens of other reforms that have uh, helped women. There is an active affirmative action program for women going on in Saudi Arabia. And the same really goes for youth as well, who now have far more opportunities not only for employment, but for uh, entertainment than they did before. So these are reforms that we should um, recognize and should encourage. So with that um, introduction as to perhaps why the relationship is important, and I guess I would add, in addition to regional stability energy, uh, the third idea is that you are not going to solve the um, Arab-Israeli dispute, and you are not going to promote a moderate and tolerant form of Islam without the cooperation of the custodian of Mecca. So for all of those reasons, the relationship is important and it needs to be um, rebuilt. And I think the president uh, deserves credit for recognizing that. Um, 
whether he actually ever believed all of the things he said on the campaign trail or not, I don't know. But surely he is having to take some political heat for the fact that he is now combining, if you will, uh, his job, which really combining the two elements of his job, which are to protect both American interests and American values. And he really needs to do both. Uh, he is responsible for the security and the prosperity of the American people. Uh, and maintaining a relationship with Saudi Arabia is constructive in pursuing those goals. He's also responsible for depending, defending American values. Uh, if we abandon our values, we have nothing really to defend with. So he has to find a way to balance this. And in a way, this is the president's dilemma. Uh, and I think we should all wish him well and hope that he is able to achieve that balance in his upcoming visit, uh, rather than criticizing him for making the effort. Um, now, specifically on energy, which most people argue is why he is going in the first place. The reason that we have high gasoline prices in the United States today is threefold. First of all, we have general inflation because we printed a great deal of money to combat COVID. Uh, and you can't pump that kind of money into the economy without experiencing some inflation. Secondly, we have the disruptions that are caused by the war in the Ukraine. And thirdly, we have the fact that the Saudis have declined to play their usual role of a stabilizer in the global oil markets. Uh, for 50 years, the Saudis have generally been the central bank of energy. They are the only country that maintains a very significant surplus capacity. This is a political decision that they make, not a commercial one. It costs them a lot of money to do this. And when there is a hurricane in the Gulf of Mexico or a strike in Nigeria or a war in Iraq, or quite honestly, when the United States wants to put sanctions on Venezuela, uh, it's usually the Saudis that step in and make up the shortfall so that there's not a spike in prices. Uh, they have not done that this time. Uh, and so it is hopeful that we can rebuild our relationship so that they begin to play that role again. I think if you, uh, that it is unrealistic to expect them to abandon their relationship with Russia uh, which they have worked hard to build, which is called OPEC plus. I think that a more reasonable expectation is that they will bring forward uh, the date at which they begin to um, increase their production beyond the agreement that they have with OPEC plus and that they'll come up with a new agreement with OPEC plus. Uh, and the reason I say that is because the relationship is in bad shape and it will require, it's not going to require uh, it's not going to be recalibrated by a photo op. It's going to require confidence building measures on both parts. It is a step-by-step -step process. It's not going back to where it was uh, overnight. The Saudis are not going to pump 2 million barrels of oil more tomorrow. So True. they odorous, uh, see their prices go down. So okay. um, just to be, just to finish that, um, what I would okay. say on the um, energy, is that what we can hope for is that they agree for 
that they will not begin to price oil in currencies other than the dollar. That's a big deal, and they could do that tomorrow, and that would be very damaging to our standing in the world. Likewise, we should commit that we're not going to put economic sanctions like we did on Russia on China anytime soon, because China is their biggest customer, and that would put them in a very, very difficult situation. So those are just a couple of things that um, I would mention on the energy front. I would The very last thing to say is that the Saudis are playing an important role in the energy transition. Uh, in a whole lot of ways, in wind and solar, and potentially there's an agreement that we might make with them on nuclear power. Uh, so in any event, that is uh, perhaps, uh, that's 15 minutes of my of, of your time Thank you. that I was supposed to speak for. Uh, I can talk about the peace process uh, later on after Mike has a chance to talk about uh, regional stability and defense. Yeah, perhaps we can, we, we can do that, but th thanks. Okay, uh, I don't know if Michael, are you, are you there, Ambassador? I think his mic certainly is am, muted. Good okay. To Good to see you too. Go ahead. Uh, as, uh, look at the other side of it. I think you'll talk about political uh, defense or military. Uh, whatever you want to talk about at this point. Go ahead. Right. Um, so, you know, every negotiation involves give and take. Uh, we would like something from the Saudis, particularly on energy uh, pricing. I agree with David that. Um, there's no chance that the Saudis are going to uh, give up their relationship with, uh, with Moscow regarding energy. The most important uh, energy alliance in the world right now, I would argue, is, is that between uh, Riyadh and Moscow. And this is the personal creation of Mohammed bin Salman. He led, along with his brother Abdulaziz bin Salman, uh, the Minister of Energy, uh, he led the negotiations with Alexander Novak, then the Russian Minister of Energy, and now Deputy Prime Minister of the Russian Federation on creating the OPEC plus alliance. Um, OPEC plus is important uh, on two levels. The first is that between them, Saudi Arabia and uh, Russia uh, generate about 20% of global oil production. Uh, but because the Russians lead an alliance of former Soviet energy producers and the Saudis are the dominant producer in OPEC, uh, OPEC plus really influences um, the production of about 60% uh, of global energy output. So oil and gas output. So the, this is huge. Um, it gives them great leverage over oil prices. I don't see any reason for them to give it up. They both suffered a great deal during the COVID era from weak prices and from subsequent uh, revenue losses. We all remember the brief period, I'm sure, when oil prices in this country were actually measured in negative dollars um, and producers were paying refineries to take the oil off their hands so to keep the pipelines clear. Um, so uh, no one wants to go back to that. The Saudis and the Russians both need um, uh, uh, energy revenues at this point for various reasons. I, I don't see their, um, their cooperation ending. It's not in their interest. Um, it could be moderated, however, as David suggested, and that's important. So what would the Saudis want in return? I think what they really want from the United States is um, improved cooperation in facing the current and the potentially increasing uh, security threat from Iran. Um, we tend to view Iran through the lens of the JCPOA, the, in other words, the Iranian nuclear agreement, which the administration would like to revive. The chance of reviving it right now seems a bit uncertain. Um, the Saudis are worried about Iranian nuclear breakout if the agreement um, is not revived. They're also worried about um, regional nuclear proliferation if that occurs. Several times, uh, Saudi government officials and royal family members have indicated that were Iran actually to achieve nuclear weapon state status, they, uh, they would have to move in the same direction. 
um, and they have their own NASA nuclear program, although it's far behind that in the UAE, which is actually built uh, for nuclear power plants. Nevertheless, um, uh, this is not your grandfather's Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia is a very sophisticated country in terms of technology. In general, it's becoming more so by the day. Uh, there are hundreds of thousands of highly trained Saudi scientists and engineers, and the kingdom could construct a, a successful civilian nuclear power program uh, if it wanted to. Uh, and it's made some indications of going in that direction. It's also developed its own um, uh, a ballistic missile a program with technology from China. The Saudis now have their own uh, factories in situ for producing ballistic missiles and the necessary fuel. Uh, they're all variations of the Chinese East Wind ballistic missiles, which in turn were developed from Soviet technology given to the Chinese in the 70s and the 80s. Um, and of course, the close energy program uh, or cooperation between Saudi Arabia and Moscow means there's a huge potential uh, for an increase in Russian military exports um, to Saudi Arabia on his, uh, uh, at his various meetings with Mohammed bin Salman, including in Saudi Arabia. A few years ago, President Putin has made it clear that Russia would be happy to step up military cooperation uh, with Saudi Arabia. Um, and so there, there's a real potential of that happening. Um, of course, the Russians have far greater leverage over Iran than we do uh, because of their close relationship with Tehran, uh, battlefield cooperation in Syria, uh, coordination on energy prices, uh, military exports. Uh, it's a broad and deep relationship. Um, it's important to emphasize, I think, that the there's no natural friendship between Moscow and Tehran. Uh, over their long histories, uh, Russia and Iran have been at war, uh, in very significant wars, particularly in the Caucasus in the 19th century, much more often than they've been at peace. But right now, given Russia's reduced status in the world and its efforts to reestablish itself as a regional um, uh, great power, uh, an alliance with Iran makes sense. And so they have leverage. And the Saudis, uh, who have excellent diplomats, uh, first-rate foreign ministry, are definitely trying to uh, use the relationship with Russia to moderate Iranian behavior. Um, one of the big disappointments the Saudis feel in the security field uh, comes from what they view as an inadequate Western response, and by that I mean both European and American, to the repeated attacks on the territory of the kingdom and the UAE uh, from Yemen, from the territory of Yemen. And they view these as Iranian attacks because, of course, the Houthi government in North Yemen would be incapable of mastering these technologies. And I'm speaking about both drones and cruise missiles, as well as scuds, uh, without Iranian technical assistance, massive Iranian technical assistance. So from the Saudi perspective, Iranian policy in Iran boils down to trying to recreate in Yemen the success they enjoyed uh, in southern Lebanon with the establishment of Hezbollah. Uh, the, uh, the Saudis analyze Iranian policy as essentially being focused on creating, through the Houthi movement, the equivalent uh, situation in um, in, in Yemen, and this is an intolerable security threat to the Saudis. The Saudi policy in Yemen has actually been very conservative. Uh, job number one from the point of view of Saudi foreign policy is to um, prevent um, the Houthis from breaching the southern frontier and threatening southwestern Saudi Arabia. Houthi territorial ambitions, if you listen to what they say, stretch as far north as, um, as Jeddah and Taif. Um, and at various points in the, in the past, Kingdoms based in Yemen did control these territories in the Middle Ages. So if you look at the Middle East, everyone's territorial claims uh, on their neighbors are so great that you would have to increase the region uh, in terms of its uh, overall extent by five times in order to satisfy everybody's claims. So conflict is inevitable. But the Saudis want to defend their southern border. That's the first priority. And the second, of course, uh, ambition is to restore 
what they view as legitimate governance. In other words, the um, uh, government now based in Aden uh, over all of Yemen. That's a tall order right now, given the strength and depth of Iranian support um, uh, for the Houthi government. Uh, but you know, if you look at the number of attacks that have been launched um, uh, by means of cruise missiles um, and, um, and drones against Saudi and Emirati, Emirati territory in recent years, it averages out to something like an attack every two or three days, which is a serious threat. And of course, there have been major attacks on Adnoc and uh, uh, on Aramco. And the Saudis' view is that uh, our, our support was not uh, for them in the aftermath of those attacks was, was not all that impressive. What they really need help with right now is counter drone technology and drone technology. And again, they don't think we've been very forthcoming in those areas. They've turned to um, technology suppliers uh, in Italy, Finn Meccanica comes to mind, uh, and they've conducted discussions about drone technology with both Russia and China. I think if uh, we, are, we become more willing to, to share our counter drone technology and our drone technology with them, that will go a long way uh, toward mending uh, the relationship. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Michael. That's uh, a <clears throat> that's very good rundown from uh, both of you on the energy and also on uh, uh, defense. Both of you agree that uh, uh, regional stability matters, obviously, not just uh, uh, the territorial integrity of Saudi Arabia and fighting uh, Yemen or uh, try to counter uh, Iran. Um, um, I want to ask you, Michael, a question. Still ask on defense uh, question. We... Uh, uh, a couple of days ago, I think uh, the uh, uh, King of Jordan, King Abdullah, mentioned about uh, he mentioned this uh, Arab NATO or the uh, Middle East, the Mesa Middle East Strategic uh, Alliance. Uh, I think that seems like this could be one of the discussions. Uh, I know back in uh, 2017, when uh, General Mattis or uh, Secretary of Defense Mattis uh, visit uh, in April 2017, at uh, that time we had uh, discussion directly with MBS, actually, uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, He's, he briefed uh, uh, General Mattis on this Middle East Strategic Alliance and very much uh, they want to do something like this and the, uh, and the, and the GCC plus Egypt. Uh, plus uh, also Jordan, Iraq. And uh, a week ago, uh, also, there was a military, you didn't see that much in the Western news, there was a military exercise between Saudi Arabia and Iraq. This is the first time uh, something like this happened since the 90s. Uh, so there is a push here to do something. The, the, the countries, they feel comfortable to cooperate, at least maybe on the missile defense approach. Uh, to do something together. I mean, not, not the NATO like we know, NATO of European NATO with the United States, but their own version of NATO where at least we can defend themselves. What do you think, what do you think if, uh, the Biden administration will entertain something like this and, uh, and go forward with it? Well, I certainly hope so. Um, you know, these ideas have actually been discussed since my time at CENTCOM back in 2008 mm -hmm. to 2010. And uh, I think there's a lot of merit to them. Uh, we need um, a mechanism for um, more seamless military coordination, not just with the Saudis, but between uh, the Saudis and the other members of the GCC, potentially excluding Qatar, given their current foreign defense policy. Um, but um, and also coordination between the, the Arab states of the Gulf uh, and our other major partners, Egypt um, and Jordan. As, as you know from your own um, time on the ground in the region, uh, Colonel um, it's often been very difficult to uh, make this coordination happen. Uh, the air, air defense systems of the GCC states um, are still lacking in, in coordination. You can't really talk about uh, them having a common picture uh, of what's going on in the air yet. 
Um, and the creation of such a regional organization would really improve military cooperation on the technical level, which is, is really crucial. You know, amateurs always discuss uh, strategy, but um, professionals always end up talking about logistics and technology. And, and that's where we really need to, to see greater cooperation. But again, the uh, key to this will be uh, a perception on the part of the Saudis and their allies that we're willing to engage in more serious discussions with them than heretofore about how to counter the growing Iranian threat. Let me just um, uh, throw this on the table. Um, if Iran develops um, a functional um, nuclear force, no matter how, how, how small it might, may be, and they're definitely moving in that direction in my estimation because uranium enrichment has been stepped up dramatically under the current uh, Iranian regime, as opposed to the previous one. Um, I, I would say that um, the chance of regional nuclear proliferation is 100%. Uh, it's not just the kingdom and the UAE that can move in that direction, but also Egypt and Turkey um, just to remind everybody, uh, both uh, Turkey and Egypt have signed deals with Rosatom, the Russian government's um, uh, state-owned producer of uh, civilian nuclear technology to build nuclear power plants, one in Ale near Alexandria in Egypt and, and one uh, in Turkey. Um, and so the transfer of nuclear technology in the region is already taking place. And um, everyone in the region, all of our traditional allies, will feel th greatly threatened by an Iranian nuclear deterrent if it comes to pass. And so proliferation possibly involving Turkey, uh, Egypt, and the states of the Gulf would become a near certainty. Um, we don't like to think about this just like we didn't like to think 20 years ago about nuclear proliferation to Pakistan and India, but it happened anyway. And we need to be uh, ready for that. Um, and if we don't want it to happen, then we have to be willing to give security guarantees, which could involve extending the American nuclear umbrella uh, beyond the NATO countries to cover uh, the countries of a potential new military cooper cooperation organization embracing our traditional allies in, in the region. It's really all about the extent to which we're willing to extend the nuclear umbrella. If we extend it, we might be able to avoid proliferation. If we don't, then we'll get proliferation. Should the Iranians, as now appears likely, um, succeed in, in creating their own nuclear deterrent? Thank you. Uh, thanks. That was, uh, that was good. And I agree with you. I mean, the United States has to play a larger role in this. I mean, it seems the, the region is, um, they see a common enemy, at least with Israel, and they wanted to uh, improve that defense cooperation. They want to take it a higher level, not just security cooperation, come up with some kind of uh, mutual defense agreements or uh, something close to that. Otherwise, uh, the trust is, uh, is not there. Um, so thanks. So David, uh, I, think we move meant, I think you meant they see a common enemy in Iran. Correct. Israel. Right. No, no, and Israel, and Israel will see, also seeing the same common enemy. Uh, Israel will see the same common enemy, right? Right. And, uh, right. and if, if Iran becomes nuclear, like Michael was saying, I think the first country to react to it is not Saudi Arabia. It will be Israel, actually, to do something about it. I think. David, do, you, do you have any comments on the defense side, uh, David? Or any, uh, or, uh... No, I would, I would simply add, um, I would echo, really, that's not an addition, yeah. to what both you and Mike said, that this is something that we've been, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. It's been something that's been looked at for a long time. Part of the problem are amongst the Arabs themselves in the Gulf. But part of the problem for the Biden administration is the domestic uh, politics that would be involved. And that's why I think programs such as this one and efforts such as Dr. Anthony's 
are important and that the American people need to have a more sophisticated understanding of what's actually at stake for the United States in its relationship with Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf and Arab states as well. Because uh, as you just pointed out, this it makes sense that we should develop some sort of a relationship with them that gives them enough confidence that they don't all go off and create their own nuclear weapons programs. But to do that, we need to be able to have the political will in the United States to provide some kind of guarantees. So that's really all I would say on the, um, just an echoing of what you both said very eloquently. Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks, David. So a uh, question, uh, let's go to, um, like, I'm sure, or I'm not sure, perhaps the normalization uh, uh, with Israel could be on the table since uh, uh, President Biden going to Israel first and coming to uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, um, and uh, David, you said, you mentioned about Saudi Arabia, it's, um, and also it's, uh, it's a different Saudi Arabia today. Uh, Saudi Arabia is important to all this energy issues and, uh, and uh, leadership issues and, uh, and uh, all that. Uh, but also it's very clear today that uh, uh, normalize, a, a true normalization or a true peace process will not happen if Saudi Arabia is not uh, engaged in it somehow uh, uh, productively. So what's, uh, what, do you, what do you think about uh, normalization with Saudi? Do you think the Saudi leadership now is ready to move forward with it or it's, it's gonna take some time to, uh, to see that uh, happen, David? First, the first point to note is that Saudi Arabia is a status quo power that likes and seeks stability in the region. At the end of the day, that is really why they are an American partner, because we both seek peace and stability. The Saudis have a lot to lose, both economically and politically in terms of their own stability. So they like things the way they are. And things that rock the boat, whether that is Nasser and his Arab socialism or Khomeini and his Islamic revolution or the Arab-Israeli conflict um, are not things that they like. And they would, so the point I'm making is that they would like the Arab-Israeli dispute resolved. And they have consistently supported American efforts to do that for 40 years. And they would like, and they did not object, uh, and they quietly supported the efforts of the UAE and and uh, Bahrain and Morocco to uh, mm -hmm. in, to come up with the Abraham Accords. So the first thing is that the will is there and has been amongst the leadership for a long time. The second point is that for the average Saudi, the cost-benefit relationship of making peace with Israel is changing. And as I mentioned, uh, there is a generational change taking place. So Saudis over 60 are wedded permanently in my view to an Arab nationalist view that is, it is essential uh, to their own identity to support the Palestinian cause regardless. I think younger Saudis, those under 30, are less committed to that cause. Uh, they see their friends in the UAE going to visit Tel Aviv. Uh, they see their business colleagues in the UAE uh, making profitable business arrangements uh, with, with Israel. 
and they remember, if you will, that um, two things, really. One is that the Palestinians did not support Saudi Arabia when the uh, Iraqis invaded Kuwait. Uh, after all that the Saudis had done for the Palestinians, they still did not come to their aid when they were in need. And secondly, um, there's a belief that the Palestinian leadership uh, in the West Bank is, is feckless. And um, I wouldn't know uh, what, what other word I might use, uh, that they are, they are unable or unwilling to, uh, to make peace. And clearly the, uh, in Gaza, we have Hamas, which the Saudis view quite rightly as a pawn of the Iranians who are their existential enemies, if you will. So um, the point I'm making here is that both at the leadership level and at the, um, and so the point, the second point really was that the Saudi, younger Saudis are less wedded to the idea that uh, you have to support the Palestinians, whatever they want. Uh, so for those two reasons, uh, both popular and at the leadership level, I think there is a will to, to move forward. The question is, uh, when would you do that? I don't think that the time to do that is right now, in part because of what I just said, uh, that the um, who, who would you deal with? Uh, the Palestinians have to be included. They, they can't be ignored. Uh, they, they shouldn't be given a veto, perhaps, but they can't be ignored. Uh, and therefore, who do you deal with in the points of the Palestinians? So I don't expect that there's going to be any great progress. I don't mean to put a wet blanket on this, but I don't think there's going to be a great progress in this Biden trip. I think there will be a reiteration of some things that already happened. Uh, for example, overflight of uh, LL flights flying over Saudi Arabia. That has been, I, I've seen that mentioned, but in fact, that's already happening. Uh, some sort of agreement on the uh, islands in the Red Sea, which again has already happened, but it could be confirmed in some way. So I think there could be some small steps, uh, but I don't see a big breakthrough. And I would say one other thing, which um, perhaps will surprise some, but I think it to be accurate, is that the Saudis and the Israelis do not really want the United States playing a mediator role. Uh, if you remember, the Oslo agreement uh, was negotiated without the United States. They did it in Oslo specifically so that the United States would not be uh, aware of it. So to the extent that the Saudis and the Israelis come to an agreement, I think it will be brokered between themselves. Uh, and not with uh, any particularly important input from the United States. And the last thing to say is that uh, what would be important to the Saudis is the status of Jerusalem. Uh, and that, I'm not speaking for the Saudi government, but I think that that would be at least as important to them as uh, the Palestinian issue. And it certainly would be important to bringing along the rest of the uh, Muslim world. So it has, to, and that requires some kind of discussion with the Jordanians. So I get, that's my answer. It's rather perhaps too long-winded, but I don't expect a big breakthrough coming from the Biden visit on the peace process. I would say, this is really the last thing, is that one thing that would be helpful is for the Biden administration to stop dismissing the Abraham Accord as irrelevant and insignificant. I think it was significant. Uh, and I think that it would be uh, charitable uh, uh, to, to admit that. So thanks.
Thank you, thank you. I, I do agree with you. The Abraham Accords are significant. And I think uh, at this stage, uh, the regional countries really don't want the United States to dictate to them. They just want them to be on the table to assist and to, uh, with it. Uh, with that, I'm going to ask um, uh, Michael, if you put on your uh, dipl diplomatic hat, and uh, so how do you approach this uh, Abraham Accord and normalization with Saudi Arabia? I would say uh, I agree with what David just said. I, I think that actually there is enough of a, of a real relationship, albeit an unofficial one, between Israel and Saudi Arabia already um, for the, the two countries to reach a stage of normalization without a lot of American involvement. I would just add one thing to his excellent analysis, which is I think what really matters to the Saudis from a religious perspective. And of course, Saudi Arabia is the guardian of the two Islam, uh, Islamic holy places, Mecca and Medina, and the center of geographical center of the Islamic world. Um, what really matters to them is the status of the Al-Aqsa Mosque um, and the Dome of the Rock. In other words, the top of the Temple Mount. Um, I've had uh, many discussions with um, uh, Saudis about this over the years, and they always say the same thing. Uh, that's the bottom line. Uh, we must have access uh, to the uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque and to uh, the Dome of the Rock to in other words, the top of the Temple Mount, we have no issue uh, with the status of the Wailing Wall, uh, the retaining wall built uh, uh, during the time of King Herod uh, along the side of the mountain. So we're getting into fine details here, but they matter. Um, and I think if that issue can be negotiated properly, uh, then uh, the Palestinian issue will not be the kind of obstacle in the way of normalization that it was in the past, especially given the overwhelming uh, common strategic interest that both Israel and Saudi Arabia have right now in containing uh, the potential uh, and the already extant uh, strategic threat from Iran. Yeah, thank you. Uh, David, I mean, uh, you've, uh, you're an expert on uh, history and uh, um, culture and all the dynamics of the royal family, uh, past and present. Uh, I've, I'm sure you've, you've seen MBS, uh, the Prince Hamad bin Salman, the rise of, uh, with uh, King Salman, and basically he set the stage to become a king. I mean, he's, uh, he's traveled outside the country. He's, he's been, uh, was received as a head of state and, uh, and he uh, leading the Vision 2030. And he was talking the talk back in 2016, but now he's producing uh, all, the, all, all these results. So what would take, you think, to uh, all this, uh, the Democrats or the Biden administration, others uh, to accept the fact that uh, uh, the, uh, 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 you know, Prince Mohammed bin Salman is, is the person that speaks for Saudi Arabia, for example, in your opinion? The first thing I would say is that King Salman is still the king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, and we need to remember that. Uh, the second thing is that on a de facto basis, um, his son does manage uh, the, the, the foreign relations. Uh, but I don't, but I think it's important not to dismiss the king. I, I think that's what I'm saying is that, that um, you know, he's not King Fahad. When King, king Fahad was completely incapacitated, that's not the case with King Salman. Um, the second thing to say is that it was King Salman who engineered the rise uh, of Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman did not emerge uh, on his own. He was 
assisted by his father who chose him to be the leader over the new leader over a large number of competing uh, candidates, if you will. And I think that his father's choice has been vindicated by the fact that, um, as you pointed out, uh, and what I wrote in my book, uh, you know, when I started to write that book, I titled it Vision or Mirage, referring to Vision or Vision 2030 as to say, is this a vision or is this a mirage? And I think if I were writing that book today, I would have to come up with a different title because it's clearly not a mirage. The changes that have taken place um, are significant uh, and probably irreversible uh, and continuing. So I think what you, to answer your question, those people who have a visceral, um, almost knee-jerk reaction to anything Saudi, a negative reaction to anything Saudi, really should look even beyond regional stability and energy interests of the United States, they should look to the things which they themselves place great value on. Women's rights, in particular, but the religious toleration. These are things which Saudi Arabia is dramatically promoting at the moment. Uh, most Americans probably don't know. There's actually a chief rabbi of Saudi Arabia today. I mean, that's pretty shocking, actually. I couldn't believe it. I thought when I heard that, I thought someone was pulling my leg. Uh, but there is. And he performs religious services in Riyadh. Uh, that would not have happened uh, five, ten years, seven years ago. It wouldn't have happened under King Abdullah. So... Uh, I think that the way to change people's minds, if you will, to open people's eyes is to tell them not we need to get gasoline prices down because, to be honest, most of those people who don't like Saudi Arabia are probably driving a Tesla. So uh, they're not going to be interested in that argument. But I think that if you tell them that Saudi Arabia is now becoming a model for other Arab countries to follow in terms of social liberalization and that they're doing this on their own. And I think this is an a point worth making. The Saudis are doing this. We did not send an army to Saudi Arabia. We did not pay billions of dollars to reform the Saudi government. In fact, they usually support things that we ask them to help finance. And the difference between what's happening in Saudi Arabia and what's happening in Afghanistan, where we spent thousands of American lives and billions of American dollars, and now we're watching it go backwards, uh, and Saudi Arabia is going forward on their own, I think that's an argument that people ought to, ought to wake up and listen to. Uh, and so I think that is the way that you could get people to begin to understand that uh, Saudi Arabia, far from being a pariah, ought to be a partner. Thank you, David. That's, that's good. Um, on the same uh, topic of uh, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, uh, Michael, uh, uh, we've noticed already that, uh, that Turkey uh, managed to uh, to break away from the Kashakshi uh, uh, case 
and uh, not use it at a center of gravity of their foreign affairs. Uh, what would it take for uh, the United States to uh, follow suit? And I mean, I understand the magnitude of the uh, what happened in the consulate. It's it's uh, not right and all that. We know that. Uh, but uh, we have a, a countries uh, have interests and have values, but also interests are important. So how do you think we can uh, break away from this and rebalance this uh, uh, pursuit of interest versus a pursuit for human rights and uh, uh, issues? Michael. I think advancing uh, human rights uh, requires a pragmatic diplomatic approach. And, um, you know, um, I, I think it, it, it's not difficult to move past the Khashoggi affair uh, we all know what happened. Uh, there was extensive uh, press coverage. But at the end of the day, you know, it's one negative incident um, in a relationship which represents a tremendous uh, success in the foreign relations of the United States over time. I mean, we've had extensive um, uh, relations with Saudi Arabia and extensive dialogue with them for years about issues in which they're making tremendous progress right now, uh, including human rights. We ought to celebrate these successes while not overemphasizing the problems that continue to exist. That's just pragmatic diplomacy. And we should never lose sight of our own, of our own key foreign interests, which we've been talking about during this hour. So I, I think just a return to pragmatism um, would be um, uh, you know, an, enough, really, to move past this issue. We need to return to um, pragmatic diplomacy as opposed, opposed to uh, an excessively ideological approach uh, to diplomacy. And in general, I think we need to build up our diplomatic capacity, far more than we have in the past as, as a country. And all of our uh, friends overseas see this. We've um, invested tremendous resources in our military capacity uh, and in our intelligence um, agencies. And we've allowed our diplomatic capacity to wither on the vine. Uh, and of course, um, these, this kind of investment decision uh, leads to self-fulfilling prophecies. I mean, if you don't have much in the way of diplomatic capacity, then what a uh, issues arise in foreign affairs, you're going to tend to react with intelligence methods, with covert methods, or with uh, military force, both of which are much more expensive than diplomacy. Diplomacy is far and away the least expensive way to, to deal with foreign crises and to uh, promote American uh, foreign interests, including in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf. So we need to refocus our government uh, on diplomatic instruments of power. Yeah, I, thank I, you, would, thank just you. Add, yeah. I would just add to that, uh, Two things. Um, and refocusing, uh, as Mike said, on diplomacy means to balance interests and ideology. Uh, and that an excessive focus on ideology, or quite frankly, an excessive focus on human rights, uh, leads to problems, as it did in Iran. Um, you may recall that many people felt we couldn't deal with the Shah of Iran because, after all, he had a bad human rights record. And I would put forth that the people who followed him have a far worse record. The fact of the matter is that a foreign citizen was murdered in a foreign city by a foreign government. If the United States broke relations with every country where that happened, we could shut down the State Department tomorrow. So I think this event needs to be put in perspective. And I think the loss of one foreign life, which was egregious, 
and needs to be held, people need to be held accountable for that. But it needs to be weighed against how many, and there are many, American lives the Saudi-American relationship has saved. And I can speak personally to that, that Saudi counterterrorism cooperation has saved American lives. So these things, it's not a simple yes and no black and white situation. I think these things need to be weighed. And as Mike said, I think it's time now to begin to re-engage, or at least I think that's what he said, to begin to re-engage um, with Saudi Arabia. Thanks, uh, David. And I do agree, you on, uh, agree with you on the counterterrorism. I mean, Saudi Arabia is the number one country uh, that uh, assisted the United States through counterterrorism, you know, uh, not only in the region, uh, around the world. And that's, uh, that's a fact. And uh, on the diplomacy, I just uh, I think our uh, our common friend uh, Michael Ratney is uh, designated. I think he will be the uh, ambassador to Saudi Saudi Arabia. Perhaps he can he can solve some of these problems for us. I wish him the best of luck. For you, Michael, question. I want to take take us uh, to uh, Yemen. We haven't talked much about Yemen. Uh, it was very much welcomed uh, from President Biden, uh, which President Trump did not do, is by appointing a, an envoy, an uh, uh, envoy to Yemen and appointed uh, 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 Tim Linderking. And uh, God bless his heart, uh, Tim did a lot of work and moved around and he's been doing it for a while. Uh, uh, but uh, but uh, Iran is a complex case and it's very hard to solve. Now we have a, a truce. We have a presidential council, I think, uh, working. Uh, but uh, how do you, how do you, uh, how do we, uh, let's, let's uh, uh, grade them on what, or the administration on what they did and what do you think the uh, going forward will, will be uh, in Yemen? Michael. Well, I'm, uh, I hope that we, we can maintain the, the progress that's been achieved so far, but I think it is rather fragile and reversible. Um, and again, um, I go back to what I said earlier. I think um, what the Saudis and their allies in the GCC need to see is um, uh, indications that we are going to commit ourselves uh, perhaps more than we have in the recent past uh, to helping them deal with the Iranian threat. They see Yemen correctly as an example of Iranian interference uh, in the affairs of the Arab states, which are numerous. Uh, think of Gaza, think of southern Lebanon. Um, the Houthi movement is the same thing. It's a replication of the Hezbollah experiment, which succeeded so well in Lebanon uh, on, on Yemeni territory. So I, I would like to be optimistic, but I'm cautious instead because I don't see the Iranians backing away from the long-term investment that they've made um, in Yemen. Uh, uh, David, do you have any comments on Yemen? Any general comment? Mike knows a lot more about Yemen. I'll leave that to him. Okay. Um, I think uh, uh, let's see what. Uh, let me go back one more time to uh, to uh, uh, Iran, and I think um, this is something. Uh, I mean, the, like we mentioned earlier, the JCPA is uh, not working, and I think the compliance for compliance is not working. At least Iran is not uh, compliant, um, uh, and we still Iran still a, a terrorist uh, on the terrorist. Uh, country supporting terrorism list and the IRGC also a terrorist organization. So, um, I mean, how, how do you, uh, what would you think the uh, Biden administrations, I mean, uh, or President Biden in his visit, how would he approach that to the, uh, to the Gulf? How would we, how would he introduce Iran? Uh, how would he explain what's, what we're we doing with the JCPA to the, the GCC and what kind of, 
uh, what kind of assistance he's going to get from them or ask from them if he asks that. I don't know if that's a, a right question to ask, but I would like just any comments around that question from uh, both of you, please. Well, Michael. you know, regarding Iran, um, there's a lot we could be doing in Iran, uh, in my opinion, to advance our interests that we have not really done yet. Um, uh, I look at Iran from a, a perspective of its own internal politics, and I see a very fragile regime that has a terrible um, uh, track record in terms of the way it treats its ethnic minorities, the way it treats its working class, the way it treats its population in general. Um, Iran is, is absolutely fraught with internal political tensions, and um, it would be very easy to um, weaken the Iranian regime and perhaps produce dramatic uh, internal political change if we adopted in Iran the, the same approach that we adopted um, vis-a-vis the Soviet Union during the Soviet period. Uh, we were extremely effective at working with um, refuseniks, with um, anti-communist um, uh, uh, workers' organizations, uh, underground trade unions, um, with religious organizations like the Baptist Church, the Orthodox Church, um, Jewish organizations to undermine Soviet power. Um, and in the end, you know, we accelerated, I think, certain internal processes in the Soviet Union that led to dramatic political change. Obviously, we have problems with the current Russian government, specifically in Ukraine, but you know, there's no way you can compare the threat the United States posed by the current Russian government with the threat posed by the Soviet Union. Uh, we all grew up in that period and all remember the constant threat of nuclear war, which has largely disappeared. So I think something similar could work in Iran. I think we owe it to the Iranian people, actually, to um, uh, stand up more publicly, more bravely, more consistently uh, for the rights of um, minorities in Iran and for the rights of uh, the working class in Iran. Iran has um, actually vibrant underground anti-government trade unions. No one is doing much to support them at this point. Um, and they have vibrant organizations at the regional level um, trying, to, um, trying to support uh, the rights, for example, of the Afazi uh, Arabs, you know, the Kurdish population and such. So there are numerous uh, ways in which we could um, change the political dy dynamic inside Iran. I think we've refrained from doing so because we hope that uh, if we focus on the JCPOA, we might be able to achieve a more stable um, you know, regional order um, but in fact, um, that approach, in my opinion, has not worked. And uh, it's time to um, revisit the whole Iranian dossier and, and, and see what we can do to protect the Iranian people uh, as opposed to the Iranian regime. Yeah, Thank you, I Michael. Would, um, yeah. oh, go ahead. Uh, that was I'll my last quick. question, but go ahead, David, answer that. I'll, too, I'll, yes. just, I'll be quick um, on two, two points. Um, yeah. I believe that the Obama administration deserves credit for attempting to bring Iran back into the family of nations. And I think that no one could say that they did not bend over backwards to seek to do this. As someone who lived in the region, um, I thought this was an ill-starred enterprise. I did not expect it to work. I've watched people look for the so-called Iranian moderates for 30 years. Uh, but I thought it was a worthwhile and noble effort. I think by now people should recognize that it was, it did not succeed. And I don't think you can completely blame the Trump administration for that right now. We're not having much success. Uh, 
And so I think Mike is right, that it's time to recognize that you tried plan A, and maybe it's time to try plan B, which means to contain Iran rather than to court Iran. So that would be my first point. And then the second thing was you asked me about Yemen. And when it comes to the internal politics of Yemen, Mike is far more uh, better versed than I am. But I would say that with relationship to the Saudi elements of Yemen, um, the Saudis, the, the Iranians are heavily involved in, they are trying to create something like uh, Hezbollah on the Israelis' northern border for the Saudis on their southern mm -hmm. border. And if you are seeking confidence building measures that can very immediately have an impact on rebuilding the Saudi-American relationship, uh, some assistance in their conflict in Yemen would be most welcome. I think that it's, the first of all is that we all have heard about the uh, civilian casualties caused by Saudi airstrikes. First of all, that's several years ago now. Second of all, I don't think that the Saudis, that anyone seriously thinks that the Saudis were consciously trying to kill civilians any more than our drone strikes were trying to do that in Pakistan. Uh, and so what I think that we need to do now is to, again, stop finding reasons to beat the Saudis over the head for something they did several years ago and start trying to work with them on things that, and help them to make the right choices in the future. And that may include things like helping them with cybersecurity, helping them with uh, air defense security, um, putting the Houthis back on the uh, terrorist list and increasing our efforts to interdict Iranian arms shipments uh, that come into to Yemen. So those are all things that you could talk about in this upcoming visit, which would uh, begin to put the relationship uh, back on a more even keel. Uh, thank you. Colonel thank Dahl. you, David. Yes, sir. Uh, would you entertain a, an input or comment from my side? Sure. Yes. My pleasure. Yes. Go ahead. No, um, uh, I second and italicize uh, uh, Michael's uh, emphasis on diplomacy uh, for better part of 30 years, the, the defense budget uh, in terms of assets, uh, dealing with their needs, their concerns, and their interests, uh, swamped, dwarfed uh, uh, the diplomatic foreign service uh, um, budget. And the, and the results um, have been obvious there. If we go back on the, to the context, which uh, uh, Michael also underscores, as does, as does David, uh, there are those who talk, well, we have to have stability in order to have security. <clears throat> I would argue, no, it's the other way around. Um, uh, people's uh, more basic need is stability, I mean, security, uh, to not be threatened uh, so that they can anticipate, so that they can predict, so that they can prepare, so that they can plan. If they cannot do these things, they might as well uh, have no life whatsoever. But if you have security, you have a good chance uh, over time uh, for stability, which would need to be sustained. So the two go hand in hand, but the two are not equal. Security is uppermost, and that leads to stability, not necessarily, if at all, the other way around. And the two combined joined at the hip, Samia's twins uh, there, uh, provide one a good platform of foundation for the prospects for peace. 
And the three combined, security, stability, and peace, uh, are oftentimes a winning formula uh, for prosperity, again, sustained over, over time. And we can see what happens when uh, any of those four are shattered. We're seeing it in uh, the Ukraine. We have seen it in Yemen. Now, uh, you pointed out in the beginning that the president will be meeting also with uh, Egypt uh, and, and Jordan, uh, as well as uh, the other five members of the GCC. Now, if you want to have the interoperability that Michael uh, alludes to that does not exist on missiles and much else in the realm of uh, uh, armed forces uh, technology, uh, this does not happen by accident or coincidence. You have to meet, you have to negotiate, you have to give, you have to, you have to take here. The last time that the uh, GCC dealt with a major power to try to seek a, an agreement of, of, of this sort uh, was with the European Union. And what the, it founded, it started in 1987, and it continued uh, until 1998 at the summit in uh, Muscat, which I attended, uh, where it stopped and it has not been resumed. And a re big reason it stopped was because the European Union continued to move the goalposts, especially in the realm of intrusion in the domestic affairs of the GCC countries. And so the degree to which we are going to italicize, neonize, and uh, pulverize the mm -hmm. human rights issue uh, uh, this can be counterproductive and it's likely to be counterproductive uh, because there's no, no, no counterbalance there. There's no GCC or Saudi Arabian uh, intrusion to anywhere remotely near the uh, comparable scale in the United States, where one third of all people in the world behind bars are behind bars in the United States. And where in the last 22 years, you've had two major presidential elections where the person who got the most votes lost. And you're still in a contentious situation where the United States is polarized. So we need to go light on the preaching, on the pontification, on the pomposity, and hold up a mirror to ourselves and be empathetic in our approach in this particular regard and to highlight the role of countries like Oman and Qatar and Kuwait and what they have done along with Saudi Arabia behind the scenes uh, to bring about the ceasefire and the renewal of it in, in Yemen. Uh, this kind of an example on the diplomatic front holds out great prospects, greater intrusion on the domestic affairs of any or all of these countries is going to boom around and not be productive at all. Look at the stability and the security that you have in Saudi Arabia. Uh, you have a degree of security in these six countries that arguably has not existed in the last 40 years among any other six geographically contiguous neighbors in the uh, 130 emerging uh, uh, countries uh, there. You've had uh, this particular entity of the GCC countries that helped us mightily to prevent the Iranian revolution from extending to the Western side of, uh, of the Gulf. You had it help us mightily 
geopolitically and bringing about the uh, debacle of the uh, lack of success in Afghanistan. And you had a signal uh, contribution uh, to the reversal of Iraq's aggression against Kuwait. And so engaging all six of these, not just Saudi Arabia, but also, of course, Jordan and Egypt will be uh, essential, but also essential will be agreement on the ground rules, no intrusion in the domestic affairs of these countries. You can see this source of stability or a great measure of it in the case of Saudi Arabia, where uh, 51% of the population, women, are more pro this particular de facto head of state than any previous Saudi Arabian head of state. And you also have the youth. Uh, there are very few appointments to positions of significance to anyone who's older the age of, of 40 years old. This too is unprecedented. And then you have a member of the ruling family taking on other members of the ruling family on grounds of corruption there and, and issuing an, a zero tolerance. These are sources of stability and security arguably in any country. And credit must be given where credit is due. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Anthony. I think uh, uh, we exhausted all our time. Uh, just before I'll just make I uh, one last comment, if yeah, I can make yeah, one quick comment on the yeah. question of the um, other make, make Arab leaders, the other Arab states that will be there. Make your final comment, uh, David. This, someone is, asked this also, will be my uh, final comment. In, okay. in terms of the other Arab states that will be there, most notably Jordan and uh, Egypt, okay. we face a coming problem. I think the, the, the issue for good diplomats are is to look ahead, for perhaps for anyone in life, is to be able to look ahead. Right now, it, you don't need to have a crystal ball to see that energy prices and food prices are rising dramatically for a number of reasons. <clears throat> this is going to put great strain on the economies and uh, public order in a lot of Arab countries that import wheat, uh, that import fuel, and the likelihood of another Arab Spring, which I would argue was far from being a glowing success that some people thought it was going to be, uh, but in fact uh, precipitated the revolution and dis uh, disruption across the Arab world, which we're still feeling the effects of. Uh, if we want to prevent something like that happening again, we're going to need to pay attention to the significant amounts of aid that some of these countries are now going to need and that the people that are most likely to be able to help with that are the Saudis uh, who have helped in that way and along with the UAE and Kuwait and the other uh, oil producing states so, and Qatar. So um, I think that is really a key issue that they're gonna have to discuss because these people are going to be needing help and how the United States plays a role in that is important for them all to agree upon. Thank you, David, very well said, thank you. Uh, uh, Michael, any... Uh... Final uh, thoughts? Um, yeah, again, I want to go back to the point I made earlier about the need to re-emphasize diplomacy as a key uh, element uh, in, in, among our instruments for projecting national power. It, it, it's, it's, uh, it's way overdue at this point. I also think we need to begin to acknowledge uh, you know, Saudi Arabia as, as a tremendous example of the success of US um, foreign policy. When mm -hmm. I first when I was deployed to Saudi Arabia in 2004 from Iraq, 
I, I remember the remember. tremendous threat to the existence of the Saudi regime from Al-Qaeda that existed at the time. Working together with the Saudis, we defeated Al-Qaeda and drove it out of Saudi Arabia. That was a huge success. And since then, Saudi Arabia under King Abdullah, now under King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince have moved, has moved and taken dramatic steps forward in all sorts of areas in terms of its social organization and, and human rights, uh, women's rights, economic liberalization. We ought to be celebrating these successes and reinforcing them rather than ignoring them. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I agree. I remember that 2004 and five were together at the embassy at that time. And you're right, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as uh, Saudi Arabia is not a country to uh, to forget about or down, uh, downplay uh, its strategic uh, significance, not only in the, in the region, it's uh, has also global, whether on the energy side or on the religious side. Uh, so thank you very much. I would like to uh, now pass it for Dr. Anthony for his uh, brief, if you have any brief uh, last minute uh, closing remarks, Dr. Anthony. No, thank you for superb moderation, uh, Colonel Dahouk, and for your <clears throat> incisive analysis and, and assessments and prognoses on the part of, of David Rondell. And we wish him further success <clears throat> on his book, which has uh, achieved already significant success in, in terms of uh, focusing on vision or, or mirage there. And uh, Michael Gofella as well for his longstanding intensive and extensive exposure to the realities on the ground with the players, with the policymakers, with the opinion formulators, and with the decision makers uh, in Riyadh. This is but one of a year-round series of educational uh, missions. That is a, a mission, one word, education, uh, through publications, through these webinars, through these Zoom briefings, through the 225 members of Congress and their staff and, and defense and foreign policy advisors we've taken to the region, uh, to the 50,000 young Americans and Arabs that we have uh, provided uh, experiences and leadership training. Indeed, tomorrow uh, is going to be an all-day session at uh, the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations, where we have 23 students, each one representing a different uh, Arab country in the League of Arab States uh, Secretariat uh, in the practice of empathy and reading and writing and editing under atrocious deadlines. Uh, writing quickly, effectively, and rapidly, uh, editing quickly, rapidly, and effectively, and speaking quickly, rapidly, and effectively, uh, all under atrocious deadlines and judges. Uh, so this is but one brick in the edifice uh, that we're seeking to, to build. Uh, thank all three of you for your uh, careers, your dedication to public service, your selflessness, and your willingness to share your hard-earned expertise, your knowledge, your understanding, your information, your insight. All the best to everyone. And thank you for viewing and listening and participating. I'm John Duke Anthony, President of the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. All the best to everyone. Goodbye. <laughs>